You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from the series, The Compelling Community. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, I am uh, really excited about this and excited to see what God does with it across the year um, in us individually, as family units, for families that choose to engage in the resources that are available from the app on the phone um, to resources that we'll make available out in uh, the main foyer uh, to do at home personally and with your family and what he does uh, in our life together as a church. Now, I know I've been at this long enough to know that, that some that are among my historic tribe will hear the word catechism and think Catholic. Um, that's not actually accurate. Um, the Catholic Church does have its own catechism, but the church has been using catechisms to teach uh, almost from the very beginning. Uh, the Lord's Prayer has been used as a catechism, the Apostles' Creed. Um, the Ten Commandments. They've all been part of the catechisms that we come to know now. In the 1500s, the first of the more modern, if you could say that, catechisms were being written following uh, the Reformation. You had the Heidelberg Catechism and then the Westminster Catechism and Shorter Catechism. Coming out of that, Baptists began to develop their own uh, catechisms in the 1600s as well, uh, led primarily by a guy named Benjamin Keach. And it just, uh, the word catechism or to catechize just comes from the Greek word katecheo, which is to teach or to instruct publicly, all right? That's it. And so it's a, a series of questions and answers that help us be more formed in a time where each year as um, organizations like Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research and Barnum and others put out um, annual sort of states of the church or states of theology in the church, it's getting crazier and crazier how unformed uh, not only people in our country are, we don't expect them to be that formed theologically or, or biblically, but how unformed people in the churches are. It's not that we don't know Bible stories and we might not know where to turn in the Bible if we're sad, but we don't know the story. We don't know how things connect. We don't know, aside from saying, thou shalt not and thou shalt, why? Uh, we're not able to root those in a theological story. So we're excited about this. Let me uh, uh, just make you aware of a couple more things before we jump in to the message this morning. The Greater Impact Special Offering, uh, month two, is rolling in. Um, so far, we have, you guys have given $20,014 to the Greater Impact Special Offering. So that's $20,000, a little bit over $20,000 that you've given over and above your normal, regular, faithful giving to the ministry and the life of the church. So I'm grateful for that, grateful to God for your generosity. Uh, 40,000 is our goal, so I'm hoping we can close that out this month. If you have not given sacrificially yet to the Greater Impact Special Offering, I hope you'll do so. All that information is on the website, on the app. You can go there and find out more about it. Um, this month, the January charity drive is going on. We have a couple of uh, organizations that have specifically uh, given us lists of things that they are very much in need of. Uh, you can find those everywhere. They're in the half sheet. And I would also say this, the half sheet in your program, I hope you start taking that thing home with you, right? That has everything you need to know in it. 
take it home, put it in your Bible, put it in your pocket, um, except kids, you'll wash it if it goes in your pocket. Uh, and some of you guys may as well. Um, so women, you know who you're married to, so you can tell them either hand it to you, put it in his Bible, but don't put it in his pocket, or whatever. But those are meant to go home with you and stay with you. Um, midweek LM Institute classes, uh, there'll be two offered uh, this spring, an elective in church history, and one of the core classes, again, gospel story. You can read about those online, uh, as well as Team Kids, the Wednesday night meal, that kicks off on the 18th. So letting you know those, refer to your half sheet uh, for more information on the website or um, your app. Now, we're going to start a new series this morning called The Compelling Community. Not a compelling community, but the compelling community. And the title and some of the structure for the series and the messages will come directly from a book written in 2015 by the same name by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. If you're interested in the book, there's a link at the bottom of the sermon notes page in the app so you can go directly to that. It's an excellent book. But I think most of us, if we were to be familiar with or hear today, the great church father Cyprian's statement about the beauty and the power and the place of the church in the life of God's purpose for his people in the world, it would not resonate with us. Cyprian said, one cannot have God as father without also having the church as mother. One cannot have God as father without also having the church as mother. And Cyprian was just simply making a statement as to the profound immovable, central nature in the life of God's plan and purposes eternally for individuals and his world of the local church, the local assembly of worshiping believers connected to one another relationally by and through the Holy Spirit. But many of us our experience with the church, I think, would be more like a great marketing campaign that got you, then you bought the thing, and it didn't quite seem to do what they told you it would do. But I do believe that the local church is God's compelling community. This is his dream and intent. This is his central vehicle for advancing the gospel and making his glory known, making the good news of Jesus Christ known, of sanctifying and transforming people, of reconciling marriages, of instructing husbands and wives how to be husbands and wives, instructing men and women walking and living in singleness how to do that in beauty and glory. And on and on I could go. But this morning we want to talk about two different kinds of churches that are oh so similar from the outside. Um, if you get, now I may share a, a bit of a quote or just story from the book next week. If you get the book, you'll see that it opens pretty soon with this. The story of two churches located um, very close to one another in Washington, D.C. Both are legacy churches. They've been around 100 plus years so they've seen a lot of change in Washington, D.C. Uh, both were in rapid decline in mid-20th century and late 20th century. Both, by the grace of God, have turned around and have um, very diverse younger congregations there. One of them, though, has a gospel-centered, biblically orthodox 
preacher, pastor, elder team. The church is built around the gospel and around biblical instruction and the beauty and the power that we find in the gospel. The other is not, the other pastor says, he's not even quite sure if the Bible is authoritative or if Jesus really rose from the grave or if that was just sort of symbolic of God's springing us from the kind of self-centeredness and oppression that we live with apart from him. One is a very liberal church, and I use that term loosely there. One is a more, at least biblically speaking, conservative church. But both are churches within a close geographical proximity to one another. Both are, from looking in, thriving, and yet very, very different. And I would submit to you that these two kinds of churches represent two very different visions of community. And when I say that, I mean both the community that you and I long for and need to experience with one another, the depth of friendship that everybody is looking for who is not a sociopath or psychopath. All of us are looking for, now some of you need larger friend circles, some of us need smaller ones, but we all need people. We're built for it. We're made in the image of a triune God who has always been in himself community and relational. We're built for it. But at least in the life of the church, there are two very different visions for this community. And I want to ask you to stay with me because what I'm going to share with you is at first going to seem um, counterintuitive. And it is counterintuitive. It's at first going to seem illogical. But I think if you'll stay with me and, and stay with the Lord as he instructs us through his word this morning, you'll see that the community that you and I are looking for is often, is often subconsciously and without the intent to err, not the community that is being built in local churches. Let's begin with God's word reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. There's always a lot of ways to come at something when it is a, a more topical series. Um, you can come at it through narrative passages or relational passages that highlight different people. Um, but I think grounding the first message in this series theologically is really significant. We'll do some of the other uh, coming up. But let's look at um, Paul's little letter to the church in Ephesus, which contains some of the highest writing on the nature of the local church that is to be found anywhere. Now, many of you will know that in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul's laying out the redemption that we have in Christ through the gospel that comes to us by faith, through grace, not through our works, so that no one boasts. It's a gift of God. Verse 11 then, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, which would probably be all of us in this room, by birth and called uncircumcised, in other words, outside of the covenant people of God, outside of God's favor and reconciling community, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God 
in the world. I want to pause there for a minute because I think part of why the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel doesn't resonate with us that much today is that we have lost our teaching around the bad news. We have lost a willingness to believe who we were before God saved us and who our friends and family members, however well-intentioned in life they are, are right now apart from a repentant, regenerate experience with Jesus Christ, apart from, in shorthand, being saved by God. But Paul doesn't hold back. He says, who were we in that state? We were distinctly separated from Christ. Distinctly separated from Christ. We were excluded from the citizenship of the people of God. We were not part of them. We were foreigners to the teaching and the hope of God given in his covenants. They weren't for us. They didn't come to us. We didn't receive them. We didn't walk in them. We were, apart from God, without hope and without God. How powerful is that? Separated from Christ? Separated from the covenant people of God, not a part of them? Foreigners and strangers to the hope and the teaching of God that comes in his covenant word to his people without hope and without God. Can I tell you this morning, church, that that is the description of your friends and coworkers and family who have not been saved by God yet. Who have not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ by the grace of God, through faith, upon the confession and repentance of their sins and belief in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but now, but now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, right? Paul keeps clarifying to us that it's not by our morality, it's not by our ethics, it's not by our religious activities or devotional commitments, it's by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Note that peace from God is not an abstract kind of thing. It is Jesus Christ himself and you in him. He is your peace. That's why when you stand face to face before God in judgment, you have no other plea but Jesus Christ who's made peace between you and God between you and your warring self and between you and others. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles here who hated one another so much they wouldn't pass one another on a street. They wouldn't eat with one another. They despised one another. It is, and I don't think, I think that this is accurate to say that the closest we get to this in our day is the far liberal left and the far conservative right. They hate one another. It's not that they just disagree. Both groups see the other group as evil. 
and incapable of good and sincerity. And Paul says, God busted all that up. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. Now, isn't that cool? He hasn't just brought the two groups together. He's made them one. They're not this one and they're not that one. They're a new one. He's made them one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. One new humanity. We constitute a gathered assembly, a worshiping community of believers who are in fact this one community. We are brothers and sisters in Christ by the Spirit of God. Which means that the truth is, regardless of how we feel, regardless of how close we are, regardless of how much we know about one another, the truth is that I have more in common with any of you or any genuine believer I'm going to meet on a train or a plane or in another country anywhere that I've just met than I do with my own family members or longtime friends who are not believers. That's simply a biblical truth, that I am their brother. And they are my brother or sister. And we are in Christ together. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who were near. You see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, don't get to sitting a little higher in your chairs, Jews. My, my, my kindred brother, my race, my ethnicity, because Jesus had to preach peace to both groups, to those who were far and to those who were near. The message is Christ and Christ alone. doesn't matter what race or ethnicity or religious background you come from or your parents come from or your grandparents. Christ alone. Verse 18, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Doesn't matter who you are, who I am. Doesn't matter how much money we make. Doesn't matter what our background is. Doesn't matter how tall, how short, how fat, how skinny. We all have the same access to the Father by one Spirit. This should lead increasingly to powerful and empowering unity in a church. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Um, you know, you've experienced this if you've traveled abroad. You've experienced it on a smaller scale. If you've traveled abroad and randomly met another American while you were in a different country, um, there's a kinship you have instantly. You can talk about things. You can share things. You recognize things about one another. That, that is true tenfold or should be, for us as believers. No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens 
with God's people and also, also members of his household. Have you ever thought of yourself as a member of God's household? There's a reason that we take membership so seriously here now. We are members of God's household, and it is God's household. And God sets the parameters for what membership looks like. He tells us how we act and behave and operate in his household as members. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So let me talk to you just a bit coming out of Ephesians 2 around this idea of of two visions for community that result in two different kinds of church. The first vision for community that you will see in most churches is called gospel plus community. Gospel plus community. And I'll say this, most of us who who love Jesus are committed um, faithfully to his church and our church and fully believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, don't really believe we're in any danger nor is our church, of building community without the gospel. But, but, hear me ask this. What if churches, including us, unknowingly build community without the gospel all the time? What if we unknowingly and unintentionally build community without the gospel all the time? What if, despite our good intentions and sometimes best intentions, we're consistently even building church communities that can and do thrive regardless of the gospel? Let me say that again. What if we, despite our best intentions, despite good intentions, are actually consistently Building community within the church and building church, entire church communities. That can and do thrive regardless of the gospel. In other words, if you pulled out the centrality of the gospel, that shared belief, that teaching, that community, those relationships, they would just continue to thrive. Let me put it in a, in a bit of a story form. A, I say a single mom joins the church, starts coming to the church, who is naturally, who's naturally most likely to connect with her? Single moms. Yeah, single moms. Who's uh, naturally most likely to understand where she is and what she's going through and have shared needs, shared felt needs? Other single moms, of course. So, Typically, she's encouraged to do what? To join uh, some kind of small group or ministry for and with single moms. And sure enough, she is integrated and assimilated into those groups. She's building friendships and she's thriving. Great. Or, Or is it that great? I would submit to you that what actually occurred there what actually occurred there and occurs over and over and over in our churches all across the Western world is not a gospel phenomenon, but a demographic phenomenon. That would occur whether or not she was meeting in a church with Christians. Said nothing about the gospel, didn't even require or need the gospel. Single moms gravitate to each other regardless of whether the gospel is true. 
Say the same thing for single dads or for uh, middle family parents who are struggling through the teen years or whatever it is, whatever it is. Retirees. It's, it's gospel plus something else. And this community, don't hear, me, don't hear me say what I'm not. This community is wonderful and helpful. How many of you at some season of your life have been a part of this kind of community that was the center of it was either a specific need um, that you had or maybe a specific uh, stage in life like the mom I just told? How many of you have been part of those groups? I think you're mostly lying. But I know some of you are putting them up. If you've been in church for very many years, you've been a part of that group. A Sunday school class is that group. It's an age-graded stage of life uh, group, typically. Typically in churches, that's how they're done. Yeah, and, and they're not bad. It's wonderful and helpful, but its existence says nothing about the power of the gospel. The existence of these kind of gospel plus areas in our churches provide no gospel witness and no gospel draw because there's nothing that has to change for us together in that setting, right? I can connect any time with guys about my age who've got several kids at home, work full-time. Maybe I had a military background. We can connect and talk and become friends and go out and hang out and do all kinds of things without any gospel or any Jesus or anything. And I, I would submit to you that most of the tools we use in the church the tools uh, to try to build community and, and build connection as people come into the church are just this. They're gospel plus other things. They're sh- shared experience, maybe people with certain backgrounds, certain uh, related work, shared interests. You know, we've got a motorcycle, uh, motorcycle group and a shopping group and a movie group. And, a, you know, you just kind of and we have entire churches like this. You've got the cowboy church. Um, the motorcycle church. i got to find something else to say. But anyway, um, entire church is built around this, right? The ski church, the resort church. And I, I know a lot of this is new thinking, and I hope your brains are firing. Even if they're saying, I think what you're saying is ridiculous. That's all right, but be thinking about it. Be thinking about it. Shared needs. Shared life stage. This has just been the, the most common through most of our lifetime is like, whatever age you are, we're going to put you in the group with everybody your age. I'll explain to you uh, in a minute why I believe that has, um, has been wonderful and helpful for some in it, but overall has been a bad experience for the church. So this leads me to one final question, at least in this section. Um, does it really matter? And this is a fair question. Does it really matter what we use to draw people in or how we draw people in as long as when they're around they hear the gospel does it really matter i tell you this morning yes it does for at least a couple of reasons one is just a simple psychological reason what you win people with you win them too and when you win them with this kind of idea that they're going to come in and you're just going to put them in places where their needs are being met and they're with everybody like them then what they have done is come into a, a, another, another place uh, to consume, to get what they need where they need, not a place that calls them to die and to serve as the gospel does. It allows quick connection, but shallow connection, a connection that's built around individuality and self. And you've got to keep doing it. And another reason, when Christians unite around something other than the gospel, 
We create a community that does not need God to exist. The community that Paul is talking about in Ephesians, that church in Ephesus, could not have existed without God because the groups of people in there were so diverse, they hated each other, they despised each other, they distrusted each other, they wouldn't eat together, walk together, talk together, do business together. And the gospel had broken it down. And it was this wild, vibrant witness in the Roman Empire that something has broken into our world and it is turning the old human standards and human dividing walls upside down. But when it's always gospel and, it all can be explained by the end. It's kind of, it's kind of if you think about it, it's kind of a, a modern day Tower of Babel where the glory is in our own strength instead of God. Because everything can be, everything can be explained in human terms. Yeah, we're together, we, we share this, we share that, come from this, come from that, so we all get out together and hang out. Dever and Dunlop in The Compelling Community say this, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be with people of similar life experience. I think we would all agree to that. Nothing wrong. That is both comforting and sometimes tremendously helpful. It's entirely natural and can be spiritually beneficial. But if this is the sum total of what we call church community, I'm afraid we've built something that would exist even if God did not. I pray that that is a haunting quote to you. A haunting quote to you. Have we built community and built pockets of community in the church that would exist even if God didn't? Because they're not really built on God or built on the gospel. They're built on these things we just talked about. And centrally on them, on age, on shared life experience, on shared interests or hobbies, on felt needs, or so on and so forth. Now, let's talk about the second vision for community. It's not gospel plus community, but it's gospel revealing community. And it is what it sounds like. It is a kind of community that reveals to the world the beauty and power and truth of the gospel. This is what uh, Paul is getting at in Ephesians 3.10 when he takes it beyond the world in the heavenly realms. And he says this, and this won't be up on the screens, but just listen. His intent, that is God's intent, was that now, now, in the age of Christ and the Spirit in His church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. That even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are looking down at the church where all these distinctly different people are coming together into one new humanity. They're becoming members of one single new household, the household of God. And they're marveling at the church. They're marveling at what God is doing in and through the church. In a gospel-revealing community, people are, are helped out of our comfort zones. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, it is hard. All of us prefer comfort. We just do. We prefer to be around people we already know, people we know we're safe with. 
We prefer to, to sit in the same places, by the same people, same patterns of life, join groups with the same people, sit around the tables or in the chairs close to the same people. But in gospel-revealing community, we're helped out of our comfort zones to intentionally cultivate gospel-driven relationships. Don't miss this. That would not exist apart from the supernatural power of God. And this can start in little bitty ways in a church. It can start by intentionally sitting by people you don't know at all and trying to cultivate just the beginnings of a basic friendship. It can happen when instead of inviting the same four or six people that you always invite to go to lunch after church, you invite two or three you don't know. You look around and go, who do I just perceptively have the least amount in common with in here? That may be a miserable lunch, but it should not be if you're both believers. Of course, you can have a a believer that's, you know, he's a bit weird, right? Or she's a bit weird, so it's just an awkward, awkward lunch. Um... But this is what gospel-revealing community is about. It's moving past our comfort and cultivating gospel-driven relationships that would not exist apart from the supernatural power of God. This kind of community, found in these kinds of church communities, makes the gospel visible to a world that's watching and looking. Let's look at exactly how that happens. How, how, How does... Gospel-revealing community work? How does it make the gospel visible? Well, it does so first by being created by the gospel, right? This kind of community is created by the gospel. That's all of the testimony of Ephesians 2 is saying this. God has taken those who were formerly alienated from one another, foreigners from one another, and made them one new family. Part of the beauty of this is looking uh, on the, the floor at LM Kids some week and seeing, a, uh, seeing a, a corporate worker with an MBA sitting in the floor playing with little children. And the other worker in there is a young woman who never finished high school and is working full-time in food service at a local restaurant. That's, that's a little glimmer of what Paul's getting at here. It's a space where those two wouldn't ever connect anywhere else. And you can throw in there certain genders around the table. It's not certain genders. I sound like our crazy culture. Men and women around certain combined tables, different races, different ethnicities. I'm going to address this stuff in the next series starting in February. So mark your calendars for all four weeks. Um, It's just multiplied. Created by the gospel. Look again at at Ephesians 2 at verse 13. Paul does a good job of describing uh, the unique separation of these groups in 11 and 12. And then in verse 13 he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's meaning here is not just brought near to God but brought near in his writing to us, to Jews, who were the covenant people of Israel. We've all been brought near to God and one another. How has this happened? It's happened through the gospel. Not shared interests, not shared hobbies, not shared life stages, not shared experiences, not shared ethnicities, not shared races or shared education or uh, shared uh, economic status, but solely through the gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace 
who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of these groups to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What Paul is saying is the kind of community that exists in the church can only be created by the gospel when it is truly a biblical community. When it is a true community of God. And it will be distinguished both um, by its depth and by its breadth. Let's look at verse 218. We'll deal with breath first. Breath. Verse 18. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I can't do, and I don't feel like I need to do a lot to demonstrate to you, I've said enough about it, how hostile the relationship was between Jews and Gentiles in the day. But there was such a, such a breadth of people. And when you look at the church in Acts, Every kind of of former religious uh, bent or sect or tact or group was represented. Rich people and poor people and slaves and masters. Different races, different ethnicities. Men and women were together, worshiping together, participating in corporate worship together. Leading, teaching, loving, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This cannot be replicated. Our pathetic society for the last 30 or 40 years has, has made a, a valiant attempt at pseudo-diversity and inclusiveness that has led to disastrously destructive and deadly consequences because it cannot be created apart from the gospel. Cannot be created apart from the gospel. All kinds of people. But there's a depth to it too. Look at verse 19. We just read a minute ago, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Uh, The unique way in which we relate to one another, there's a depth to it that even by the second century was causing pagan, non-Christian historians and Roman officials to say, man, these Christians, we don't get it. They're weird. They do their own thing. They worship a dead man. They drink his blood. There's all kinds of strange stuff going on. But there's no needy among them. There's no needy among them. We've never seen anything like it. And to whatever degree they can, they go far beyond themselves in caring for people. It's amazing. We've never seen it. They'll, they'll readily share their finances, but not their marriage bets the complete opposite of the Greco-Roman culture, the Hellenistic culture that the church was in. But man, they looked in at the community built by the gospel and were stunned. And that only happens when it's created by the gospel. Second, gospel-revealing community is observed in our relationships with one another. Gospel-revealing community is observed in our relationships with one another. And, I, and I, I go through all this because my presupposition is that you and I hunger for gospel-revealing community. We hunger for the kind of breadth and depth of relationships where we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to pretend. 
We won't pretend. We share fully with people that love us, that we trust and we know, and they know and love and trust us, and they pray for us, and we pray for them, and they weep when we weep, and they laugh when we laugh. But this doesn't come easily. It doesn't come easily. Do you remember what our Lord said in John chapter 13? as he was preparing the disciples eventually for his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He said in verses 34 and 35 of John 13, A new command I give you, love one another. He, he doesn't say a new command I give you, love the poor, love the downtrodden, love the marginalized. He says a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This leads to the kind of love we have for one another. It is other first love, which I would submit to you is the only real kind of love. Love is always inconvenient. Love is always sacrificial. Love always calls us to die to ourselves in order to serve and to love and to give to others. But Jesus says, in the way in which I have loved you, Remember, he's preparing to lay his life down for them physically. This is the way you're to love one another. That's the, the depth of love we're talking about. The depth of care for one another in our local church. In verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Again, I think we think Jesus said, by this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love the poor, if you love the marginalized. And don't hear me saying we're not called to do that. But that is not what defines us as believers. There are many categories of moral people who will not submit to the authority of Christ, would not agree that they need to repent, who are very good at loving and caring for and reaching out to the poor, the neglected, the marginalized. Jesus didn't say that. He said that everyone will know that we belong to him and are his disciples, his active followers in his way when we love one another, if we love one another. That's the central gospel power of a church is the way in which you and I love one another, the way in which we forgive and look past all of the little slights that happen when you're in a relationship with people. How many of you have been married for longer than an hour? Raise your hands. Okay, you have already had to forgive one another an infinite amount of times. That's how it works. Kids, friendships. But for some reason, people can get twisted in the church and leave the church faster than any bunch of kindergartners I've ever seen. And I'll tell you, one day we'll give an account for that when we stand before the Lord of the church. Because that's not how we're to act as believers. If there's anyone who doesn't cut and run, it's followers of Jesus who have been supernaturally wed to one another as brothers and sisters. Are there times to leave a church? Absolutely. There are very, very, very few times. And probably 93, 94% of what uh, in our culture in America people leave churches for uh, wouldn't meet a biblical standard at all. It's just I wasn't getting what I wanted or someone you know, said my granny was mean or whatever, and out I go to the next one, and I'll be just as useless there. That might have been too far. Jake, they'll let me know and staff meeting if it was too far. Um, 
But we're called to this kind of love, to this binding, sacrificial need meeting. You first kind of love. That's how gospel-revealing community is observed. Finally, it's created by the gospel. It's observed in our relationships with one another. And, and I think this will be challenging for some of you. It's designed as an evangelistic witness. And by that, I mean that when you study the New Testament carefully, evangelism is primarily a function of the local church, not the individual Christian. You're you're thinking people, you're bright people, look at it for yourselves, study it for yourselves. Because most of what we've been taught through all the many systems over the last 40 years is completely opposite. I didn't say only either. I said primarily evangelism is a task given to the local church. It's something we do together. Uh, Let me call your attention just briefly for one small example of this in Acts chapter 2. Right from the very beginning, we see this. Very common passage, but usually we don't connect the preceding five verses with verse 47. So let's start with verse 42. They, as these new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Can you imagine a church like that today? Can you imagine a church where people say, I'll sell one of my two or three homes. I'll sell my boat. I'll sell an extra car. Most of us could clean out our garages of stuff we don't use and pay off our $2 million debt. It's crazy the amount of stuff we have. But we're, we're not ignited by the Spirit in ways. And don't come at me through an email this week and say, well, that's because they thought Jesus was returning real quick. I would, uh, I would say, you're probably right. Do we not have records of this going all the way through the first century, all the way through the second century, and many records of it all the way through church history right up until today? Until men and women are, desig- are, 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 um, are giving, there's a word I'm looking for, it starts with a D, but I can't get to it, um, are donating plots of land, donating buildings to new churches, donating multi-million dollar pieces of land and equipment. God's Spirit moves in powerful ways. So as God's Spirit is moving and they're loving and they're giving and they're sharing and they're praying um, and they're feeding on God's Word, verse 45, I think we're already past that. Verse 46, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As they were living together as the church, as they were active and faithful in attending and gathering and studying and praying and giving and eating together, God saw fit to add people to their numbers. That that way of living, that way of being the church became an evangelistic witness that drew lost people in to something that they couldn't find anywhere else. Craig Bartholomew in the drama of Scripture, which some of you have read if you've been through uh, that core class with Elm Institute, writes, much of Acts is taken up with the witness of the apostles. Yet it is the life of the community 
as it embodies the powerful working of the Spirit that authenticates the truth of the good news. That vibrant and sharing life attracts more and more people from outside the community. In other words, the vibrant and sharing life that we have among ourselves, among one another, attracts more and more people from outside the community to join with those who already possess this life. And then when they come in, sinners begin to to realize that they're sinners, that there's something different about the people of God who are also sinners, but by God's grace have been made saints and are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They come in and they realize, oh, the church really is a place for sinners. If it's not a place for sinners, I don't know what it is, but it's not a church. And then they become more open to the answer to their own sin and brokenness. Bartholomew goes on and says, the apostles can proclaim the gospel to any who will listen, but it is through observing the life of the Christian community that many people are convinced of its truth. It's the same today. God intends it to be so. This is why the church is, at its best, the compelling community on earth for the gospel. One last quote by Brad Kallenberg. The gospel may remain a mystery to the surrounding culture unless the church lives out the gospel in the form of its life together. This is why participate, this is why membership matters to us. If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna be faithfully here, you're just not gonna be in a member. Be an attender, be a regular attender, that's fine. But gathering together faithfully, week in, week out, week in, week out, that's what it means to be a person of faith. That's what it means to be the people of God. It is this pattern of the believing community's relationships that embodies the story of Jesus in concrete terms. In other words, we sin against one another. We forgive one another. Relationship is restored. We're working then together to bring the kingdom of God. It's the story of Jesus. It's the gospel retold and retold in terms that outsiders can comprehend. Only when the gospel is linked to such concrete illustrations can an outsider say, ha ha, I see what you mean. It's one thing to hear about God's grace. It's quite another to go, look, I see what you mean. I see men and women giving one another grace. I see teenagers who were notoriously ungracious. But hey, we were all there, right? Giving one another grace. Offending one another, sinning against one another, forgiving one another, restoring. I see this age doing that. I see that age doing that. I see the old learning from the young and the young learning from the old. I see people laughing and crying together and sharing. One of the saddest things I think about our tendency over the last hundred years to gather all smaller groups in the church primarily, I'm not saying you know, everything, but primarily around age is that when I only gather with my age group in the church, apart from a worship service, I come to understand the church only through the lens of my particular age group. And that is not a victory for the church. Young adults gather only with young adults. They come to see and understand the church only through the lenses and the values of their young adult lives. If older adults, senior adults, 
do the same thing, the same thing happens. And we miss the beauty of the interaction and the learning that happens. And so much of the unity that comes in the church where groups are centered around gospel truths primarily instead of age or shared hobbies or whatever. And you've got men and women, married and single, older and younger, all learning from and talking with and listening to one another. That church is how the gospel deeply begins to take root. Change starts happening and your particular faith starts igniting in ways that you may not have experienced in a long, long time. In just a minute, uh, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, when I finish praying, uh, or as I'm praying, the offering ushers will make their way to the front. When I finish praying to close out the message and transition us into receiving the offering, uh, they'll begin passing those buckets. Um, You've got just a, a minute or so to finish filling out a connection card. Maybe you absolutely know that you want to be part of this compelling community instead of just in the stands. Maybe you're not even sure how. Write whatever you want on the back there. Sign up for a group, a way to serve. Say, I want to serve somewhere, but I don't know where. I don't know how to get started. Reach out to me. We will reach out to you this week, and we'll walk with you as far as you're willing to walk into this beautiful, glorious thing that Jesus Christ created and called his own. Let me pray for us when I finish praying. As I said, the offering ushers will make their way uh, to their positions while I'm praying, and then they'll begin passing those buckets. You guys can drop in your connection cards, drop in your giving envelopes. If you need a little more time with those, take the time you need. Drop them in any of the drop boxes on the walls on your way out. Let's pray. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.